is in Jennifer Manor. If you like the strange or paranormal, you've come to the right place. But don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> Hello, thanks for joining us today. Just a little preamble before we get to the interview. If you're willing and able, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. It really does help us, and most grateful. And uh, obviously I will be mentioning those people who do next week, at the beginning of next week's show. Now my next guest is Brian Forrester. You can check him out on thehiddenincatours.com if you like what he says today. And if you like me... If you hate the fact that science is the be-all and end-all of everything and what it says goes, even, you know, and even they get these things where it just doesn't add up, but they just turn a blind eye to it or they just ignore it, like Gebekli Tepe and places like that, you know what I mean. Uh, all this stuff that's in plain sight and they just just won't accept it. Well, if you're like me and you find it a bit strange, and I'm still 0% sure as to why the cover-up, yeah, assuming there is one, well, it's a really interesting uh, interview, actually. I find it mind-blowing. Uh, but if you like it, then please pass on your feedback to us, and uh, obviously we can forward it to Brian and then hopefully have him back on the show again because we do want to have him back on. And you can reach us at uh, dbtopodcast at gmail.com. Said too much now, so let's just get on with the show. What was your aha moment if you like i don't know if you use that phrase in america um you know like your eureka moment where you realized you was looking at potentially the evidence of a lost civilization um it was actually my first trip to cusco i i hired a local tour guide and um he took me to many different locations and he said yeah the inca built this the inca built that and i noticed a glaring uh, difference in style. Some of the stuff was like stone with mortar construction and adobe brick and and that kind of thing. And I thought, yeah, that the Inca could have done that. But then some of the megalithic work where you can't fit a human hair in the joints. I, I, I you know, I've worked with power tools all my life, and I thought, how how the hell would we do that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know. I say I've actually seen some photographs, uh, which I think are your photographs of this. And I like the one where you show, it's like a, you know, it looks like someone later on's come along and tried to rebuild one of the walls. And yeah, just I, dropped I watched a, that. It's yeah, fascinating. They've dropped it's a stone in, but it's, uh, on the face, it looks all right. But as you, you know, as the, as the you know, over the years, the, the, the walls crumble down or whatever, you can actually see inside the wall and you can see where this rock or this that they've placed in doesn't quite fit inside you know what i mean so you can see that obviously someone's tried to emulate what they're seeing but they're not quite got the skills to do it um and when we come on to you know building these walls what what tools were these people meant to be using Uh, well regarding mainstream science uh version of it well they honestly believe that the inca did all of this with bronze chisels um and they're they're adamant about that. Bronze is a very soft metal, mm-hmm. and the stone that's being worked on is basalt and granite, which are like twice the hardness. Mm. Did the um, did the people who came later on did they use the same materials as well? Well, the more you look, 
the more you can see that um, the city of Cusco and a lot of the other ancient sites like Machu Picchu were destroyed by some kind of cataclysmic event. Yeah. So then, then thousands of years later, when the Incas show up, they, of course, they don't do anything with the what's still intact, but then they use the material that's fallen down to rebuild. And then when they run out of that material, then they use local material, <laughs> a different kind of stone. Yeah. And that's where it starts to become really glaringly obvious that you have two very different types of technology involved. Mm. I mean, you're almost looking at a difference between modern day brick and uh, you know, modern clay. It's it's that obvious what you're looking at. It's two, I mean, it's different colors. It's, it's just so obvious. Um, I'll get into the mainstream science view on it all uh, towards the end because obviously there's, you know, something not right with what they're saying. But yeah. As for a lost civilization of people, uh, and I'm going to come on to the Prakas people uh, shortly, but as for this lost civilization, it's my belief that we're looking at potentially, not just uh, in Peru and places like that, but like Quebecli Tepe, Baalbek, Easter Island... We're looking at the, and you know, in some places in Europe as well, I'd, I'd go along as far as to say that. We're looking at potentially a lost civilization that we don't know too much about. Um, is that what, some, what you. Or what's been hidden. You know, or hidden, what's yeah. What's not going to be talked about in is mainstream that, schools or the colleges. Is that something what you believe to be possible or true? I think, yeah, I think definitely because we're looking at. Um, you know, we're looking at levels of technology uh, at least as good as what we have, or in some cases even more sophisticated and mysterious, depending upon where you look. I think there were at least three different advanced civilizations because their building techniques are completely different. Yeah, and it's it's counterproductive almost. So you've got like the the best building um, at the beginning. You know what I mean? And then the, as you, the more modern you get, the, the worse the building seems to get. I mean, you'd think it would be the other way around. If it just... Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And, and it's at all of these lo locations. If you look at Baalbek or you look at sites in Egypt or Peru, Bolivia, Easter Island, um, in, even India and uh, other locations, you see very sophisticated work to start with. And then it actually does get worse. As time goes on, mm. just gets a bit shoddy and a bit rushed. Uh, you know what I mean? It's almost a bit. It looks a bit lazily done towards you know the fair views you get on. It's still some of it's still beautiful and well. You know, obviously craftsmen did a lot of it, but it just seems that little bit. Um, they either had less time to do it or not the tools. Or, yeah, not the skills. You know not, what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. And I think that's clear and yeah. obvious the more you look at it. Um, so. Um, yeah, moving on to the uh, the Paracas people then. Um, see, it, you know, only it's only a few years ago where I come I stumbled across uh, across the Paracas people, and I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of it we still don't really understand about the Paracas people. But do you think these people? And I know like some of the schools have been only dated to be as old as possibly only two thousand years old. But I, I, is is there a possibility that they could go f extend further back into history than that? Yeah, it could. The problem is that there aren't any academics really studying that culture, um, which I find very strange. Uh, mm. The last major research was done in the 1960s, and so that was before there was such uh, things as 
really good radiocarbon testing. Uh, definitely DNA testing didn't exist then. So that, that's why I took it up because um, I'm actually living in the Paracas area mm. and I, I have access to all these ancient sites and ancient skulls and things like that. And uh, so I've taken it on myself to try to figure out who these people were. Have you come to any cast iron conclusions as to where they originate from? Not yet. The, um, one of the local major archaeologists, I sat down with him and I, I asked him two simple questions. I said, do you know why they seem to have had genetically red hair, which mm. is not something Native Americans have? And he said, no. And then I said, do you know for sure where, where they came from? Because they seem to just spontaneously appear. And he said, no. Mm. So that's that's when I suggested, well, how about if we... If you get permission for us to take DNA or bone samples so we can do DNA testing. And he started that process 25 months ago, and we're almost at the point where we can uh, achieve that. Oh, great. That sounds uh, interesting. So, you know, when I, you know, my belief in this lost civilization uh, theory, if you like, and the practice people being part of that, I almost think we're looking at, uh, well, I'd almost go say definitely looking at a seafaring race. Um, because of the amount of places where these people pop up. Um, just for the people that, that don't know about the Prakas people, can you um, you know, explain the differences between the Prakas people and you know, what we class ourselves as the Homo sapien um, generic archetype, if you like? Sure. Well, the, uh, the, the most glaring difference is, well, the, the um, even standard archaeology say, uh states that the Paracas appeared as a, a, a people about 800 BC and then disappeared about 100 AD. And uh, they believe that it was just local nomadic people who collectively got together and became uh, a specific um, type of person, if you want. But the glaring differences are that uh, now we know they had genetically red hair, and if you have genetic red hair, it, it means you have very light skin color. Yeah. So those are two those are two characteristics which are not Native American. And also, they seem to be averaging about six feet tall, which is at least half a foot taller than uh, most of the native people of Peru. Mm. Um, they also they lived underground in in house in these underground houses, um, and I think the reason for that is because they had light colored skin. Yeah, that's that so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and you know, Paracas is sunny 365 days a year. So if you had light skin, you you couldn't really survive happily if you were spending too much time outside. So that suggests that they must have come from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so when you look at the genetics of red hair, it originates in the Middle East. And, um, really? And then when you, yeah, I yeah, it, it's not a, a, a Celts. Would have been Celts or Scandinavia, but that's interesting, Middle East. Yeah, well, well, the, the origins of those people are likely originally Middle Eastern. Oh, yeah. Uh, at least one, one wave of migration. And then, when, you know, like you were saying, in terms of migration, if you start to to say, okay, if they came from the Middle East, maybe, then uh, let's follow the path. The shortest path would be across the Pacific and then into the Indian Ocean. And uh, the first stop along the way is Easter Island. And on Easter Island, they have stories of a pre-Polynesian people who were red-haired and very light-skinned. So that could be the connection 
um, between the Paracas and the coast of Peru. And they also say that the, the, the first Easter Island people also had elongated skulls. Really? So that's what we're, we're tracking now. Yeah. And, that, I mean, Easter Island itself is fascinating. I mean, it was only recently that they discovered that these uh, statues and everyone will know what these bodies. Yeah, yeah, they have bodies, bodies as well yeah, as absolutely. just the head sticking yeah. up. So that, that had alluded to them being there a lot longer than... Um, I mean, unless there was purposely buried... I mean, but if, you know, if it's just a case of uh, soil and all the rest of it, uh, you know, a mountain over time, they've been there a long while. Mm. Yeah, I was actually there with Dr. Robert Schock, who's a geologist, and he, he's, a, he's an expert on, on weathering of stone. And he yeah. looked around. We noticed that there are, are two different kinds of Moai. There, there's one older style, and then there's a later Polynesian style. Yeah. So again, we're seeing two different building types, distinctively different, you know, in, in popping up all over the place. Um, yeah. So, so obviously, Easter Island being an island, and uh, you know, and like I was talking about this lost civilization, in my belief, being a seafaring race, uh, would do we find any evidence that the Paracas people uh, could sail or? I know, it, I know boats don't generally... Not really. You don't generally yeah. find them unless they're buried, you know, like uh, the Viking boats and stuff. But do we uh, do we find any evidence, you know, in the tapestries or anything like that, that they could uh, sail? Yeah, actually, there there is quite a bit of ev evidence. The The local reed that grows here is called Totora, which uh, Thor Heyerdahl used in order to build... I think it was either raw or, or tigris that he made. Um, so you can build a reed boat 100 or 150 feet long, if you want. And also cotton is indigenous to this area. So there's your sail-making material. Mm. Um, also, we find in the in the artifacts from 2,000-plus years ago, things like spondylus shell, which is only found off the coast of Ecuador to the north. So it's, it's unlikely that would have been traded uh, by people walking up and down the coast. It's much more likely that... Um, that these people sailed north, and the predominant winds blow from the south towards Ecuador anyway. Mm. So that's uh, that's ev that's some of the evidence we have. So you'd think they just happened to land there and and you know set made a settlement there. Um, so they just pop up from nowhere essentially. Um, so I suppose you know moving on from from that because um, obviously they they're not around anymore so we'll have to we'll have to touch on that. Well, we don't think so. But um, the elongated skull aspect of the Prakas people is this just uh, you know the the royals of that culture or is this just you know a trait of the Prakas people themselves? It's only a, a trade of the nobility, the chiefly class and the and the priestly class, and that's it. Okay, so would that be genetic then, or or is it this cradle board, and or? Um, it depends on on the time frame. It seems that the early, like about four to five percent of them, are larger in volume than uh, than a normal human being, and the shape is so complicated that uh, that would not be cradle headboarding. The later generations appear to have bred with normal-looking people, and so that would have started to d dilute the genetic characteristics of having a naturally elongated skull. So when you go back to the origin ones, 
they they are very different than any form of cranial uh, deformation. Mm. And just the fact that they would have had light skin and red hair, you know, stands them out. You know, in South America, come you know, you know, obviously. But um, so it's not just the uh, the elongated skull, though. I mean, looking at the skulls, and I've only I'm, I'm presuming you've actually got hands on with these skulls, have you? Oh, hundreds of them. Yeah. So you will know the difference. Is uh, is it possible that they they have slightly different cheekbones? Uh, and I, I noticed that they seem to have bigger eyes. Is that something that? Yeah. You, yeah. 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 The the eye sockets are much larger. I would say fifty percent larger than normal. Fifty percent. Yeah. Yeah, and the cheekbones they look a bit raised. Yeah, and actually, um, an artist in Florida, Marcia Moore, has done three uh, three dimensional computer uh, reconstruction of many of them, mm. and they they don't really look like the typical Native Americans of the area. They, they look like a mix of of having Caucasian and Native features. Yeah, I think I've seen those uh, actually. But but did, did she give them uh, like a, a more browner skin than than they probably had? Uh, yeah, she's given them kind of a neutral. Yeah, I, I would say more of a uh, at least a light brown color. But yeah. she's it's it's a it's an ongoing thing. Every time I find a new interesting skull, I send her photographs, and then she rebuilds that. It's a it's a learning process for all of us. Absolutely, and like you say, there's not many people looking into this. That's part of the problem. Um, so when we get onto these schools, then um, you know, obviously the the glaring differences between uh, Homo sapiens school and and the the uh, priestly class, if you will, or the royal class of the um, Prakas is this uh, coronal and uh, sagittal suture. Is that the right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the fact that this sagittal suture is missing. Um, I mean. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, the idea of these things, as far as my understanding goes, is that when an infant's born or a baby's born, the head actually squashes to allow passage through the pelvis. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, so obviously needed. Yeah, so would it even be possible for a woman? I don't know if there's any cases in the world where this has actually happened, where a baby's been born without these, uh, and it's just some genetic uh, problem or whatever, but. Is it possible for even a woman to have have a child uh, without this hole in the head, essentially? Uh, I think the pelvic structure would have to be different, and that's something that we're trying to pursue. It's difficult to find an intact skeleton, and then, of course, you require medical personnel to do the analysis, but that, that's another thing that we're definitely looking at doing. Just looking at the actual pelvis size of the Prakas people compared to, to Homo sapiens... Yeah. yeah, yeah, because that, right. that would, you know, that would obviously lend weight to this uh, theory that they were actually um, of a different genome potentially. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not going down the alien route here, um, but obviously you can't rule out anything, I suppose. But they're obviously not Homo sapien as we know. Um, I think that's fair to say. So yeah. 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 So this emulation of this um, elongated skull, which we find all over the world, and, you know, I've, I've seen cases, I've just been looking, you know, last few days just on cases of this. And obviously Egypt comes up, Congo, Malta, Omec people. And I think I heard you mention that um, even places in Europe, um, which I was unaware of, 
this elongated skull has been emulated. And now we are talking about people doing it with uh, bands and rocks and that. Um, is there any more places that I've missed off? Um, actually, basic, basically, cranial deformation was performed on average about 2,000 years ago, and it's uh, it was it existed on uh, in cultures on every one of the continents except Antarctica. Um, in your part of the world, the most interesting recent discoveries have been found by Maria Wheatley, who was able to get access to elongated skulls that were found at Stonehenge. Really, yeah. This is straight. Yeah. That's where your, your barrows come in, you know, with yeah. the, you've got it, the barrows. It, it, and it, yeah, actually, that. Well, that that's exactly it because she found uh, all these skulls are being hidden on an army base somewhere in, in Salisbury Plain. But what she's been able to find out is that the long barrows were for people with elongated heads, and round barrows were for normal people. Yeah, and this is probably why we don't have access to these these Correct. barrows. Yeah, um, yeah. So, there was a few we can go into. I've been into these barrows. Some of them are quite yeah you know, neat. And but, but all there the is some that removed. is cut off. You're not allowed to go yeah. anywhere near. So know. when we see, because uh, I'll, I'll have to speak to. Uh, is she doing? Um, where can we find her work? Just out of interest. Uh, she lives in Avebury. Yeah, and she's yeah. um, she she's very easy to find on the internet. She has a has a website, and uh, she's on Facebook. Uh, she, she conducts tours um, in the Avebury area and other other parts of Britain as well. Yeah, mm, okay. beautiful, oh, yeah. yeah, fantastic place. Look into that. Yeah, yeah. So Not this um, this cradle board and, and uh, this deformation then. It, obviously, it's still going on. I, I, I presume it's still going on today, and and cultures around the world probably um it's probably just kept you know under wraps but um do they do we have any insight as to why they are doing it do they do they have a reason for why they're doing it well the basic consensus um whether you're talking about the congo or melanesia or amongst the maya or attila the Han, you know it goes on and on is um that they, it was a way to distinguish the nobility from the, the commoners. Mm. Uh, it was it was also thought to increase the level of intelligence. Um, they thought it was a beautiful looking shape, and generally they say we are emulating our ancestors. Yeah, so the, so it, it definitely is emulation in that. So they are trying to look like something that went before. Um, so that's fair to say then. So right. As for volume, um, obviously changing the shape of the skull, we're not increasing the brain size here, or is the brain size the same? Um, Yeah, I've asked a lot of of doctors about that, and they said that you can do, you can reshape the skull when a a baby's newborn because it's such soft material, but you you can't change the, the genetics of volume. So if you change the shape, the plates are going to are going to find each other uh, through the suture, yeah. and they, and it, no matter how much you tr- you try to mani- manipulate them, you can't make the volume increase. Okay, so it's just pure. Uh, but is there any um, he- you know health problems? Obviously, there's still people I, I presume in like African tribes and, uh, and Polynesian, like you said, talk like do this today. Do we find that there's any health problems to people that have had this 
done? Or did he just live normal well, lives? Or? Um, actually, in, in antiquity, we find a lot of um, trepanation going on amongst the Paracas and Inca cultures. Mm. Um, a, a lot of the elongated skulls have have drill holes in them. Yeah, I've got a theory on that, actually. Um, so, so obviously, that, that, that would lend weight to there being problems you'd think like pressure in the head or something going on so do we not yeah. do we not get that with people that still do it i mean even up till recently people in the congo and that were doing this i think so do we not have stories of them having the same issues um well as far as i know in melanesia and um also the congo uh missionaries and government stopped the practice mm. uh probably at least 20 years ago um, but the, the more, I think the more interesting point is that the, the Paracas 2000. Hello. 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 Yeah. Right. We lost you there. Um, yeah, we were just talking about the, the more interesting point was. That the, the Paracas were doing successful brain surgery 2000 years ago. Mm. See, I've got a different theory on that, um, than brain surgery. And I, it's probably, I mean, it is total speculation on my part because I don't know anything about brains but I, my theory um, and I don't know if you ever believe in ghosts or anything like that but my theory on ghosts and the, the there's a lot of evidence that children okay see see spirits um, more readily than than everybody else and it seems that when they grow older they lose the ability um, and I wonder if this hole in the head was almost a way of opening up that hole that you know we have naturally when we're born um to to access this spirit realm or yeah do, do, do you know what i'm saying um, I think implying the pineal gland the pineal gland being pineal part gland. of that yeah big yeah. part of that um and that's that's one of my theories you know based on children's here ghosts and i don't know if there's any hello 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 oh, got you back got you back <laughs> That's the Skype being a bitch, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, so what I was saying is, uh, do we, you know, so that's my theory on, um, I mean, it's like I say, it's far-fetched, obviously, but, um, I, you know, the evidence seems to, to point that way, with, with children seeing ghosts, I mean. So, do we, if that was the case in uh, the Prakas people, um, and I'm not talking about the actual Prakas people, I'm talking about the people who genetically, uh, you know, the people that they're mated with, potentially, um, mm -hmm. needing access to this particular realm because you hear about all these stories about them moving because uh, some of these blocks that they yeah. moved around were massive and you hear about vibration and and all this kind of you know super technology that we don't even have access to today potentially well these beings i believe had a, they could manipulate energy you know manipulate you know stone well, it seems to be um you know muted about so with this access to the spirit world or whatever you want to call it, is is that something that we we do we know very little about the Prakas people in the actual spiritual world? Um, well, again, the problem is that they they died out about two thousand years ago. They did leave behind a lot of textiles and um, pottery and things, and there are many depictions of of people flying. So that could be astral, probably astral travel. Mm. It's actually one of the most common aspects of the practice of are fl people flying. Yeah, flying. I mean, you get that with hallucination as well, and and again, that's linked to this pineal gland. I, 
is is my theory where my theory goes. Um, but, I mean, it could just be the the, the astral protection uh, from dreams, I guess. Is so. So, so yeah, you've kind of o- opened the interesting can of worms there for me. But um, yeah, well, well, actually, there's there is a local um, hallucinogen here uh, from the Pedro cactus that it's likely that the priestly class of the Paracas used to do visionary work. Yeah. So is this the same stuff as like uh, ayahuasca? It's um, actually ayahuasca is from the jungle. Yeah. So so they're, they they achieve to some degree the same purpose, but they are completely different plants. The San Pedro only grows in the in the real desert part of Peru, which is where I am. Mm. So and again this this i mean it pops up on ancient aliens all the time so these nazca lines and them they're uh, flying over them i know the prakas people were said to have made some of these the lines there as well so would this be for that reason or, or do you think it was more of a a signpost type situation um i actually wrote a book on on nazca because it's actually very close to where i where i am and the system begins about 10 miles from where I am, there's this giant geoglyph called the Candelabra, which is 500 feet tall. And it's on this on the side of a mountain. You can only see it from the ocean. And then when you, tra- when you travel from there through to Nazca, which is about 200 kilometers, there are numerous other geoglyphs and lines all the way through. People only talk about Nazca, but the Nazca contains about 25 figures, you know, huge figures that the uh, Nazca people made. But between the town of Paracas itself and Nazca, there are more than a thousand smaller ones that the Paracas culture created. Mm. And that, I mean, that that one that you you talked about there, which can only be seen from the sea. I mean, that obviously lends weight to them being a seafaring race of some, uh, you know. (laughs) using that as a signpost of some description, you'd, you'd say, wouldn't you? Oh, definitely. And actually, uh, the great theory by my mentor, Senior Juan Navarro, was that it represents the Southern Cross, because the Southern Cross rises right behind it, and Southern Cross has been used as a navigational marker for thousands of years. Yeah, by sailors, absolutely, yeah. Um, and that's one of the, you know, people always try and say, well, no, they couldn't travel these vast different distances because they didn't have... You know, a compass. They didn't have this and that, but using the stars, they people for a long time know how to travel the world. Um, I think it's we try and think that we're so intelligent, you know, but which we're not. It's just uh, blows your mind, really. Yeah. So, how far back is it? Would you say these practice people go? And obviously, you've, you've you've talked about them origins possibly being Middle Eastern. Um, and I know, like, uh, you know, I've, I've already mentioned uh, Lebanon and uh, Gebekli Tepe. And again, in Lebanon, you get these massive stones. Uh, you know, obviously Romans built later on upon them, but we don't generally see Romans moving a thousand ton stones. Um, it, there's no need, is there, uh, for them to do it. They can do it. They've got enough manpower to do, you know, as many little blocks as they want so I mean, this was portrayed in Egypt wasn't it all the yeah. slaves building the pyramids well, which yeah, I find I mean, quite impossible that's another one quite yeah. impossible so yeah. would you say yeah. these buildings that are being built over the Middle East uh, of these grand uh, 
buildings. Would this possibly be related to the same people? Um, it, it could be. It's kind of too early to know. But in terms of a ball deck, it's the most glaringly obvious example mm. of, there, of there being two cultures. And we had a local tour guide who said, uh, you know, the Romans built this and they moved this 1,200, you know, or these 1,200 ton stones from the quarry over here. And it's like, well, how did they move those? And, well, I don't know. And, and also, why, why did they use 1,200 ton blocks? And her explanation was they wanted to impress the local people. So that just, you know, that's, that's, it's quite stupid. So when you actually go to Baalbek, then you can see, obviously, that somebody was constructing something of a, on a huge scale, and then prob- probably abandoned the project, maybe as a result of a cataclysmic earthquake. And then thousands of years later, the Romans show up and they decide uh, to use what's there as the foundation, and then simply picked up all the other bits that were lying around and stacked them on top and, uh, you know, created their temple of Jupiter and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, even that explanation there where they're saying, oh, they did it to impress people. If you was going to impress people by doing this, you'd make them more prominent, obviously. You wouldn't build something on top of them, you'd think. You know, you'd you'd have them standing up or, um, you know, like um, some sort of obelisk or, do you know what I mean? You'd you'd make a spectacle of them, wouldn't you? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And, um, you know, you have the Trilithon, which is three, three, like simply three blocks in a row of of a thousand tons each, and then everything else is smaller. Then you have another, a different wall there composed of about 10, 800 ton blocks, and then a bunch of stuff is put on top of it, and then there's another wall of, I think, 600 ton blocks with a bunch of stuff put on top of it. Mm, Yeah, it's just, it just doesn't add up. I mean, and I'm not a scientist, I'm not an archaeologist, I'm, you know, I'm just a Joe Bloggs, but I can look at this and, and think there's something not right here. So, why do you think, and I had this conversation with someone else the other day about science, and he was talking about this is in relation to um, uh, ghosts and stuff like that, and, and science has already debunked it and all that. Well, actually, science doesn't even look at it, you know? So, and I think it's the same in, in this as well. Science has got an explanation for all this, but it's not even looking into it. So, why do you think, and obviously your DNA testing will go a long way to uh, to answer some of these questions, but... Why do you think science is turning, and it is turning a blind eye to all this? You know, what's the obsession with this, uh, this, this manufactured history, um, you know, status quo? What, what would you be your theories on that? Well, because some of this stuff just doesn't, it doesn't fit in with, um, with their timeline. So, you know, so so they're insisting, you know, to bring up Egypt, they're insisting that it was Khufu and Khafre and Menkara who had the three great pyramids on the Giza Plateau built, you know, as tombs. But then when you when you bring an engineer to Giza and you say or and an architect and you say, um, so with a Bronze Age technology culture such as the dynastic Egypt, of 2,500 years ago, could they achieve this? And the answer is no, because the Great Pyramid itself, it's been calculated that if it was built in 25 years, which is what the standard story is, Mm. they would have had to have cut, moved, shaped, and put into into place one multi-ton block of the 2.3 million of them every two minutes. Mm. I mean, 
It's impossible. That is impossible. But impossible. Again, speculation. But if they had access to this technology, what the Prakas people seem to have uh, used, um, then obviously that is possible. But the, you think that if they had access to this stuff, they would have mentioned it, um, you know, because it was pretty good at writing stuff down. So, do we have any stories of, of you know, taking the pyramids as an example? Do we have any stories of the people, um, you know, that still live in Egypt now? Do they have any stories of these pyramids being there before the dynastic e Egyptians got there? I mean, because we do hear stories like that in Peru and places like that, you know, um, and obviously the wider. Uh, <coughs> Mayan buildings, if you like. We hear stories that the people actually say these places were here before we got here. Um, that's my understanding. Is that right? Yeah. Actually, the best people are the, the people I work with at the, the Kemet School. They live across the street from the Sphinx, and they have oral tradition that goes uh, way far beyond the dynastic Egyptians. And it, it's clear to them that the dynastic Egyptians showed up about 3100 B.C., and the three great pyramids were standing there in, in a state of decay, also other pyramids at Dashur, um, as well as the 100-ton granite boxes, which are found in tunnels underground at Saqqara. But all of that was there, and it was simply adopted. And then hieroglyphics were carved on flat, um, smooth surfaces. Yeah, so they again, they just took over these places. And those... those yeah. um those granite uh, tubs, I've seen pictures of them. Are they the ones that they say that there's some sort of sacrificial bull was buried in, but there's no evidence of any bulls being buried under them? Is that the same ones? That's exactly right. Yeah. Supposedly, um, you know, it was the first um, French, I think, archaeologist who, who stumbled across. They had to dig down to find it, and they, they found these two tunnels with, I think, 2,700-ton boxes inside, with the, the lids were ajar, but there were no there was no evidence of any bull of, of any kind found found in there. But he just he decided that that's what they were for, and um, you know the story just continues and continues. And what was the dimensions of them? Do you know offhand? Oh gee, I'd guess they're about um, I think they're eight feet tall. Uh, 12 feet wide and about two, at least 15 to 20 feet long. I would say so, yeah. I, and that's my impression of looking at them. So, I mean, that's obviously bigger than the, <laughs> most bulls anyway. So, um, why you jump to a, blue, a bull conclusion is beyond me. But again, it's like science always has to um, come up with an answer um, rather than just saying we don't know. Uh, which should be the default position, and until you've done the testing and all the rest of it, until you found uh, some evidence, you'd think the default position would be, we don't know, um, it's a mystery. But we seem to have these answers that are just given, and that goes into becoming gospel then. Um, you know, because like I was just saying about that, that particular thing, I've seen those, and I've seen them being called bull sarcophaguses. so, you know. Most people will just accept that. You know, well, this is, is what this is, is definitely yeah. part of the problem. It's yeah. it becomes status quo then, and then um, that's just and again oral tradition. Oral tradition for me is uh, key to a lot of this because we get um, the Aboriginal people have an oral tradition, and they can tell you everything that's happened in their history. And when it when you actually look at it, it's spot on. And I think we find that with a lot of uh, Native American cultures as well. Um, 
so obviously I'm presuming that's the same with the South American cultures. Yeah, that's right. Well, for example, um, we know that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Cusco was older than the Inca, the standard story of academia is that the Inca found virgin land and built this city. But when the first Spanish arrived and they saw the huge wall of Sacsayhuaman for the first time, which contains stones of 125 tons, they asked the local people, did you or your ancestors construct this? And they said, no, this this was here when we got here. Yeah, and I think we have uh, reports of um, Cortez when he met when he first met the people there. I think they told him that there was there was the giants, what they refer to as giants, and we're not talking about twenty foot tall people here. We're talking about people that were slightly bigger than those. But they actually referred to giants uh, being there when they came. And I think there's letters from Cortez actually. I think it was actually Cortez as general, but um, especially you know talking about that. So. You know that's accepted in history, but again, it'll just be it'll be classed as a story that the 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 you know the Aztec people told them, I guess. But um, with this Paracas people being found, uh, it sort of lends weight to, you know, they was probably telling the truth. I mean, what they've got no reason to. You think they've got no reason to lie, really? I mean, if you if you've had a massive, you know, beautiful structure like that, and someone came along and said, "Did you build that?" Why wouldn't you say yes? Uh, I think it's, well, what we know about the Inca is that they were a very honorable, truthful people. And that's the major problem they had with the Spanish. The Spanish were very cunning and very good lying about their intents and, and what they planned to do there. So, unfortunately, that was... Part of the major downfall of the Inca was that they, they took the Spanish um, the you know, to their yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. And they just... Uh coerced them and uh, and the rest is history I suppose so yeah. get into the practice people then um, from what I've seen about the practice people and again what little we know they seem to have a great understanding of agriculture and irrigation um, would that be true oh yeah on a, on a phenomenal level because um, this area only gets half an inch of rainfall a year so they they were able to access underground streams and uh, and use those to divert those for agriculture, which was very ingenious. And that's that's part of the logic behind the Nazca line system is that some of them are mapping underground rivers and stream systems. Yeah, which absolutely would make sense uh, rather than <laughs> runways or whatever <laughs> space. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, so they so again to to build. And again, this goes back to megalithic structures and all the rest of it. To 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 build or spend time, because obviously it takes a long while to build these these uh, structures. Then to build these things, you need to have some sort of agricultural um, base, you know, to uh, support people. So again, this lends weight to these, you know, and you know, I can even talk about Stonehenge or any of these places ha having some sort of. Um, more understanding of agriculture and all the rest of it, then particularly I'm talking about uh, Gebekli Tepe as well. They must have had, they couldn't be built by hunter gatherers, um, you know, for, for, I, I wouldn't say. Uh, is that, would you go along with that? Yeah, you definitely have to have a sophisticated centralized society to be able to coordinate the construction of anything like that. 
And this is in a time where we're told, modern, um, you know, mainstream science tells us that these people didn't have any ability to to have uh, writing or you know access to anything to write anything down or you know. So it looks like it was built by a a civilization that had more technology than the people that are said to have built it. You know, I think that's. So are we talking off world here? We're talking. I don't think we need to talk about aliens. I think it's it, it looks like these people um, were here and then they died out. Do we have any uh, understanding of how these Prakas people died out? Yeah, actually, the theory that I'm developing is that there was a. A, a climate change that occurred about 2,000 years ago, and um, again, this area is very is very desert-like. Um, so what happened was there was a, a group of people living slightly to the north called the Topara, and they they lived in worse um, rain conditions than even the Paragas. So I think they had to abandon their land and move south, and they they moved into the fertile area of the Baracus and probably took over by wiping out the royal family mm. with the elongated skulls because they, they, this new people actually became what we call the Nazca. And so in the ar- archaeological record, uh, red hair and elongated skulls disappear um, with the rise of the Nazca people. The Nazca people did not have red hair or elongated skulls, but the Paracas did. So that leads me to a theory about genocide. Absolutely. So you think that the agriculture and the irrigation could have been their downfall then? Well, their success in being able to grow food in such an austere environment um, led others to want to take over. Yeah. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we don't just find, we find that in, you know, the Fertile Crescent in, in Egypt and places like that as well. It's a similar story and obviously Mesopotamia. So, you know, that understanding, obviously, because if people haven't got the, you know, that ability to grow food and, and particularly, you know, hydrate themselves, then obviously they're going to look to the next people. And if you outnumber those people, um, you know, because there weren't that many practice people, were there? Now, I did a, a story about uh, a, a Peru, uh, somewhere in Peru, there was meant to be something called a skull room. Um, with Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, it says... It says uh, what well, I had, had 10,000 schools allegedly in there. Is that even possible? It is. Actually, it, it, it's been confirmed by archaeologists I know. It's a, it's a big room that has 10,000 Peruvian skulls. Um, I saw some, a 15-second video that somebody shot inside there because it's completely off limits. But there were numerous, very elongated skulls in there. So they probably have... I guess they have 500 to 1,000 Paracas skulls. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. Is this, is, would this just be skulls or complete skeletons? Uh, and, and full mummies as well. Yeah. No, mummies, see, again, you know, when you've got mummies, you've got, you've got a DNA treasure trove, haven't you, really? But oh, especially, yeah. You know, because a, a lot of these skulls, again, the found were hair on and that, which is, uh, you know, testament to their ability to, to mummify. And again, that's something we see in various cultures, this uh, mummification of the bodies. Obviously, Egypt uh, being the, you know, the case in point in that one. Do you think? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Malta as well. I, I don't know, but off the top of my head. But these places, um, again, is this something? Is this emulation? Do you think, or is this, 
Is this just something that springs up naturally in human culture? Um, I'm, I'm not. That's a great question. Um, it's just the the fact that the environment here is so dry that it, it naturally preserves anything. Mm. Um, we, we we don't know why the why the Paracas royalty were um, were buried in such a care. Well, obviously they were adored, so they were buried in in cavernous chambers in in some cases as much as 20 feet underground. Mm. Um, and, and they were buried with their favorite uh, bowls and other ceremonial objects. Uh, but as, as to whether that means that they were to reincarnate or whether those artifacts were only to be used by them, we don't know. Mm. And you know, I heard that they was buried facing the sea. Is that is that right? I'll have to look. The, I'll ask uh, my uh, archaeologist friend that. That's a great question. The the. The uh, royal cemeteries tend to look out over agriculture and then the ocean beyond. Yeah. So it, it is it, it is quite possible that you know that the the heads were facing west, maybe towards the homeland. Yeah, that's that's what's going to be my question. I mean, obviously, when you're talking about a peninsula or an island, um, I suppose you're always going to be looking to to the sea, aren't you? But um, to some extent. But if 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 it, if they're all aligned in a you know they are all aligned in a in a specific way. Then obviously, again, I, you know my understand or my belief is that we are talking about some sort of lost civilization that was a seafaring race. So again, if they're looking to the sea, again, like you said, to the homeland maybe. Um, yeah. So um, that's uh, as much as what I've got on the Prakas people, I suppose. Is there anything that I'm you know that I, should, I really need to know about the Prakas people? What you know. Which give me a greater understanding that you know about. Well, they did have they, um, you know, they were quite an early early culture here. The Inca came about a thousand years afterwards, so um, they had the most sophisticated textiles of any people in the Americas. Mm. Uh, they also they also seem to have known uh, the Potter's Wheel. Which is not known in in uh, Mesoamerica, um, and of course the red hair, etc. We have started to do DNA testing, and of the first four uh, examples that were done, they indi- the only haplogroup or DNA that was able to be recovered <clears throat> turns out to be either Northern European or Middle Eastern. Mm. Yeah, that again is fascinating. That's. Uh... It just, it you know, it just throws everything into confusion, doesn't it? Then at that point, what we've been told, and at least we've got some sort of proof, as it were, that we're not being told the history, or you know, maybe true history, maybe, really, yeah, maybe it's no. not deliberate, but um, obviously we're getting to the bottom of what might have actually happened. So, and again, when you're talking about textiles, this and the Potter's Wheel, for instance, this is a culture that must have been around a long time to to have these technologies you know um you know they haven't just sprung up and died out you know if they've got these these things have been around a while and whether they brought them with them from somewhere else or um do you know what i mean that, again that that would show that one wouldn't, wouldn't it yeah i think that again that could be another middle eastern connection because the finest textiles as far as i know that have ever been made and still are are those of the middle east and also, the the Potter's wheel was invented in in the Middle East as well. So I I think they were 
technologies that were brought with them uh, when they when they I think they were forced to flee um, yeah. from some some area uh, by some marauding. You know, the Middle East has always been in conflict, yeah. so prob probably some marauding tribe decided to move in, and um, they, these people had no choice but to take take to the sea. Mm. Yeah, that would be my uh, that would be my theory as well, and that, that seems to be because we don't see after a certain point in the Middle East, say two thousand years ago, or whatever, we don't seem to see these people there. So they obviously have to leave at some point, and again take to the sea. That would be my uh, belief on that. So yeah, moving on to the uh, the tours that you do, um, are, you, are these tours taking people off the beaten track, as it were? Yeah, we well we we go to the um, conventional sites like Machu Picchu and Sacsayhuaman and Pumapunku and places, but we also try to add in smaller, more obscure sites that um, are not known to the general public as well. Mm. And I mean, do these places hold more of a glimpse of of what science is trying to cover up? Um, I would say, yeah, there are examples of that. Um, most people who go to Tiwanaku, which is uh, in the highlands of Bolivia, <clears throat> don't even bother going to Pumapunku, which is more interesting, and it's right next door. But, uh, you know, the, the general public, I don't think, have any great interest in in in-depth in study of anything. So um, if, a, if a tour guide says, well, we're going to Tiwanaku and we're not going to bother about that pile of stones over there on the left, then, then they'll go, oh, okay. But if they've done any research beforehand, they'd know that there's some um, stone-cutting technology involved at Pumapunku, which is at least 21st century technology. Yeah. And I've seen places, I mean, examples of that in Egypt. I mean, there's this, what they call Core 7, is it? And it's like a granite, uh, it's been, yeah, because it's a drill hole, basically, in granite. Um I don't know if you've seen it, and I think there's some examples of that in out your way as well, um, which we just don't understand how they were capable of doing that. Um, yeah, was, that's true. Have you seen that <clears throat> firsthand? Oh yeah, the best site um, is called Abu Sir, which tourists basically don't go to, and there are. I wonder why. I don't think at least. I'd say there are at least fifty. Um, core drill holes in, in granite there. <clears throat> People don't go because it's been, it was heavily demolished uh, by the post, um, you know, all, all I could say is the post uh, dynastic Egyptian people. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if uh, if a tour guide says, you know, we have half, uh, half a dozen sites to go to, they're going to go, well, we want to go to Karnak and we want to go to the Giza Plateau and this. Yeah, and then yeah. if they see a picture of Abu Sir, it's like, that just looks like a pile of rocks. We don't want to go there. But they don't understand that some of these smaller sites have the most amazing examples of lost ancient high technology than, you know, than other more famous locations. Mm. So that being said, I mean, with this lost civilization theory, which we're, we're talking about today, um, and a lot of these cultures being based near the sea, and if there was a cataclysm, then a lot of these places would have gone uh, under the flood water, essentially. So it may be lost to a history forever. Where would your, if you had to put money on it, where would you say the evidence of this lost civilization is going to be found? I think in the Caribbean. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I was I was going to say the Arctic or Antarctica, you know, buried under ice or something. Well, that <laughs> too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the Antarctic. Yeah. I, I, actually, that could be too, because it's it's quite possible that twelve thousand plus years ago, our planet was perfectly vertical and not at twenty three and a half degrees. So that would put a large chunk of Antarctica in in a temperate zone. So it mm-hmm. could very well be that um, major structures are under the ice, and that could also be why there are so many scientists there. Yeah, well, yeah, and that and other reasons we won't go into it today, but yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, so do you want to tell okay. people where you, you know your, your your stuff can be found? Well, basically everything about me can be found at my major, my main website, which is hiddenincatours.com. There are, I think, 870-something YouTube videos, 22 books, a lot of articles and interviews and things like that. Most of it is all free information. The, the tour thing is only about 5% of the content. The other 95% is, is just free info. I'll let you go because I know you're busy in that. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, gentlemen. Cheers, mate. Okay, cheers.